Two Week Notice Podcast. If I find my way back home, I'll say, what am I doing here? We have made our camp, but not settled. Nothing can touch us here. Yo, yo, what up, everyone? You are listening to the Two Week Notice Podcast. My name is Dana B. I'm your host. Thanks so much for listening. Come out. All right. Today, we have a special episode for you. So we have Rama Mayo. Now, Rama is the founder of Big Wheel Recreation. He started this record label when he was in high school, and he was putting on shows, and he went on to manage Piebald. He worked with Jimmy Eat World and Say Anything and was, you know, booking shows like Earth Crisis and putting on festivals, and you're going to hear about all this stuff, okay? Now, a couple of housekeeping items. First and foremost, so the initial purpose behind this interview was for some Piebald Instagram content because we are celebrating the 20-year anniversary of the magical record, We Are the Only Friends We Have, right? And Rama was a huge part of this record. I mean, he was basically the fifth member of Piebald. And you're going to hear all about that. But, you know, this guy has done so much. He really is a legend in, like, the scene. He ran Big Wheel Recreation. And, again, you're going to hear the impact that he has made throughout this interview. But it's a lot of Piebald talk. And I just need to preface. So he got fired by the band back in the day. I just want to be clear, okay? This was before my time, so it's really none of my business. But Rama came on. We're all adults here. He's telling his story. He's telling his side of the story. And he talks about getting fired by Piebald, and he's emotional about it. It's still, you know, it still weighs really heavy on his shoulders. So I just want to be clear that the opinions that are being expressed are Rama's side of the story, okay? So I am just the host of the interview. And, you know, his side of the story doesn't necessarily represent any of the Piebald guys' side of the story as well. Does that make sense? All right? Just trying to cover everybody's ass here. No drama. We're all adults. And this is an awesome fucking podcast episode. Rama, thank you so much, dude. Now, we just have a couple of housekeeping items before we get to this conversation. Number one, the two-week notice podcast is proudly brought to you by Furnace Fest, people. Come on. Yeah, baby. All right, so couple really important things here let me pull up my computer because guess what just a few days ago since i last spoke to you people on the two week notice podcast the entire lineup has been announced with the exception of one mystery band now i'm not going to name them all but holy shit i'll just throw out a few we got thrice newfound glory alexis on fire midtown shadows fall quicksand blindside elliot Manchester Orchestra, Poison the Well, The Ghost Inside, Mastodon, The Descendants, The Story So Far, In Flames, American Nightmare, uh, Comeback Kid's coming back too. Come on, Comeback Kid, baby. That doesn't even scratch the surface of how epic this festival is going to be. All right, people, now that you can see the lineup, guess what? Last call for early bird ticket prices. You got, what's today? I'm dropping this episode on Tuesday night, the 29th of March, kid. All right? So that gives you two more days before the prices get jacked up. Get your tickets right now. You'll be glad you did. Furnace Fest. Don't miss it. I'll be there, you fuckers. Also, the two-week notice podcast is proudly brought to you by Plug Your Holes. Plug Your Holes is your one-stop shop for body piercings, plugs, tunnels, keychains, stretchers, and more. So if you got piercings and shit, this is where you want to go. All right? 
one of my partners, Plug Your Holes Kid. Go to www.plugyourholes.com. Pick out all your shit, and then at the checkout point for a 15% discount, you want to type in the code TWNPOD. That's T-W-N-P-O-D. And that's www.plugyourholes.com. Quick piebald plug. I am currently slinging some piebald merch out of my parents' basement, dude. All right? So here's the deal. We don't have the website set up yet. However, with COVID and shit, you know, we had some shows get postponed and canceled and blah, blah, blah. Some of these markets, dude, like, we just can't get to. Or we haven't been to in a long time. And I keep getting these messages on Instagram and shit. People being like, dude, when are you going to sell some merch online? Like, I live in Seattle and I just want that really rad King of the Road t-shirt. Guess what? I'm selling them. You got to send me a message on Instagram. We do Venmo and PayPal and shit. I just don't have the website set up yet. But we can make it work, people. All right? So hit me up. Very limited in quantities and sizes. So um, get yours while you can. I think that's it, people. Rama Mayo, you are a legend, sir. Definitely one of a kind. And I don't know, I could listen to you talk all day. You're a really smart dude full of wisdom and um, just a really one of a kind businessman. So this is an awesome episode. Thanks, Rama. Enjoy. today on the podcast. This is an honor, man. Uh, we have Rama Mayo. Let's see. You managed Piebald. You founded Big Wheel Recreation. Booking agent for, who was it? I booked Earth Crisis, Strife, Jimmy Eat World at one point. Yeah, and a bunch of our bands too. Of course, Piebald, Damn Personals, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Legendary shit, man. And in uh, <laughs> a weird way, and this is sincere, I've said the same thing to John Cheese and Ryan McGaffigan. You know, in a weird way, maybe I wouldn't be where I'm at with the band if it weren't for you. You know what I'm saying? Got so, it. I appreciate respect. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about Ryan. How's Ryan doing? Do we know? Great. Yeah. McGaffigan? What's he up yeah. to? What's he doing? I think he's like doing shit with beer, like a sales rep kind of vibe, I believe. Hmm. What are you doing? Awesome. Love Ryan. Oh, man. Right now, I'm basically running a punk label, but it's all cannabis, you know? So I have, like, um, the same feeling I got from Jimmy Eat World or from Travis or Max from Say Anything, who I used to manage Say Anything as well. The same feeling I got from those men and women in, in the indie scene and the emo scene is the same feeling I got the past, like, 10 years working with these cannabis brands, you know? And back then, I didn't realize that these bands, these indie bands, were going to become these gigantic, huge bands. Obviously, they did. Now, when I was meeting with all the cannabis entrepreneurs, the men and women, I got that same feeling, you know, and I thought I believed if I could kind of build platforms in cannabis and, and kind of under promise and over deliver that trust would be priceless in the cannabis industry. And we'd kind of get to go and have great IP and you know build projects. So right now I run, I'm gonna guess probably like 10 businesses, like 10 actual companies, um, but they're all associated with cannabis. And it's just like, to me, it's just like having 10 bands on the label and shows that I was booking or a festival or that kind of stuff. It's all under a name basically called Green Street. And Green Street is a 70,000 square foot building in downtown Los Angeles. It has about 50 
um, cannabis companies in it all under one roof. We have trade show that we started called Hall of Flowers. That's like a B2B business to business trade show in cannabis. And then we have a um, consumer festival we're doing in May, our first one ever, a B2C festival. And that'll be some musical acts and cannabis. But the building I have now is exactly the model I had in Boston with Inatech. And I don't know if you remember Inatech or know what that is, but you know, it was Hydrahead and Bridge Nine. And so Chris Ren was in there doing the Yankee Suck stuff in Bridge Nine. We had Matt Galley there. Matt Galley, obviously Pieball's agent now, but now agent, number one agent in the world potentially or something. Jen Malone was in there. Jen now does all the music for like Euphoria and fucking John Wick. Matt Pike was in there. We had a recording studio, the mixing and mastering studio. So it was really like a musical business little epicenter. And I'm doing that again for cannabis. You know, so people are like, how are you doing this for weed? This is so crazy. And I've done it 20 years ago already for music. So to me, it's not crazy at all. It's like the natural evolution, but you can't download weed. <laughs> well, holy fuck, man. You said so many awesome things in there. But so, <laughs> so yeah, you're taking the same skills and applying them to yeah. So music and weed, man. Would you go to weed college? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's not a weed college. So that's basically what it is. You know, in cannabis, no one knows what they're doing. You know what I mean? So I look at it just like the indie emo scene, you know, and then, uh, but, I, but now, but there's not a warp tour. There's not a South by Southwest. There's not a CMJ. There's not a Coachella. There aren't these platforms. So we started building them. You know, we started Green Street 10 years ago and it was just an ad agency. I was doing logos and graphic design for people. And we grew that for five years or so. And then four years ago, we sold half of it to Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. If you know who that is, big entrepreneur guy, big investment guy, big agency guy. So now he came in and he's he was the one that was like, we should own intellectual property. You know, we should be building IP uh, within the agency. So the agency had a bunch of clients and now we kind of consult for like one or two big, big brands here and there, but mostly we're just focused on building building our own, you know, IP, our own artists, our own albums, kind of, if you will. Shit, man. You're a, an entrepreneur. You just have that brain, which most people don't have, or a lot of people don't have. I can relate yeah. in, in the sense that, like, you know, I worked a corporate job, like, 10 years up until maybe three years ago, right? I was mm -hmm. overseeing 64 Panera Breads. When it came time to tour manage Pieball, I, like, have I ever tour managed before? No. I can apply the same skills from running the, the restaurants, mm -hmm. but it's, like, something way cooler than fucking working for a, a <laughs> restaurant chain or whatever and yeah i mean whatever 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 people are into you know yeah, I like weed. So for me, it's like uh, <laughs> something that, you know, that's like a big passion of mine. Even back with Piebald days, you know, and all the band days, Piebald had, like we made like little dime bag fake eighths with buttons in them. So like our button set was like a little fake eighth of weed. Mm -hmm. um, I did a shirt for Piebald that said bonding through drug use. And it was like two monkeys and it was in like Belgian or some weird language or something. But weed was such a huge part of the music scene back then, and especially for us and the musicians. And um, I never thought that I would do it for a living. Matter of fact, for six months, my partner now, Josh Shelton, in the agency is an attorney. And uh, it was really him coming to me for six months, begging for his law firm and my ad agency to smash together to create a compliant ad agency for weed. But he was telling me for six months to try to do this new business. And I kept turning him down because I thought I'd be like doing the Beats by Dre or the Disney or the DreamWorks stuff. And that's what I would be doing. And then when I started meeting all the men and women again in cannabis, I got that same feeling. And I was like, shit, this is like Jim Adkins or Max Bemis. You know, this is the same kind of like energy and excitement. I just knew that it was going to be years before the cannabis brands had money the way that the corporate brands do. You know, right. still not there yet today. Interesting, man. Now, I have a random question. Maybe you could help me. I got this thing that I fucking bought at the weed store. Can 
I just go grab it real quick? One second. Of course, 100%. Second. Yes, yeah. I love it. I love this. <laughs> All right, dude. So I bought this fucking thing. It's just like the, I'm sure you've seen it. It's it's like 20 bucks for like the little yeah, battery. Yeah, the little one hitter thing. Yeah, and then you just Oh, put, the, that thing, yeah. Dude, I don't even know how to explain. It's like a cartridge. It's a little magnet. It goes into the battery so I can puff on it. I like this because I, I prefer flour because it's more natural, but the yeah, smoke yeah. does bother me after a while. Mm -hmm. So I like the cartridges, the oil, whatever yeah, it is. But yeah, dude, yeah. the thing stopped pulling. Like when I go to puff on it, man, like it won't even, there's no flow through. It, it's not the battery not being charged, obviously. No, I already tried that. It's probably the pen itself, you know? It could probably just be getting gunked up or some... This some fucking brand new come yeah, the, the, <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. i barely fucking yeah. i just got the thing did it come with the battery were they together or it was separate I, pieces yeah it's separate a lot of times weirdly enough the batteries even though they're all 510 threads i think they don't work as good with each other so it might just be something where a different battery would just work better on, on that that 510 thread thing that you have and this yeah, thing so, fucked yeah. up my day i was i was going snowboarding yeah. <laughs> i was sitting on the chairlift trying to get high and i was like Fuck. oh man <laughs> yeah i hate when you get out there oh, oh that's so funny that's so funny but um but yeah so I'm, this I'm thing's a piece a of shit this battery no, no, thing? Just might, no the battery might not be bad it just might might be a little too low for the pen itself sometimes even though they fit in they just doesn't give you enough power or the right amount of juice basically i read something online that there's like a little pin in here that like might be off and it's just not picking it up but mm. i don't know man because even if i take the little cartridge out and i try to pull on it like it's just this yeah. i don't know man i'm yeah it could it could it could be it could be just like clogged up in there a little bit you know and you need to heat it up to kind of get it get it out but yeah I'll sorry man where out. so where did you get that at a dispensary uh yeah dude it's crazy they're like everywhere now um so do you know salem well I went there every halloween for years and i know chris wren is there and stuff like that but that's but not really i don't know well well you know. right on the salem lynn line there was there's an old meineke yeah. next to a walmart the meineke is now the dispensary insa which i think had, they have a few locations i believe insa i've been buying weed for i don't know how old am i whatever 20 years you know and it's just like yeah. yeah yeah it's still like weird walking into a store to like buy weed it's but it's awesome you know yeah for sure it's still weird to me you know going into a store to buy weed you know yeah. but it's the future yeah man all right so going back you said so many cool things earlier jeez where do we <laughs> where do we start dude so you're in los angeles now is that correct yeah yeah I'm, I'm in los angeles we moved here 20 years ago the pieball guys moved out as well but yeah we came out it was jeremy and claire weiss day 19 i'm not sure talking to them at all but mm -hmm. uh, amazing photographers right so yeah. they had moved out here i had come in on a on tour maybe or come to visit over the winter and we were sitting in their backyard and they were like get an avocado off the tree and it was like this whole different experience it was like january you know i had like shorts on and it was just like summer vacation style and you know i wanted to move out and jeremy called me one day and he said rama i'm standing at your new front door there's a house just went on the market today this is pre kind of internet you know it's like 20 years ago so he's like it just went on the market today i got the landlord's phone number the house is incredible you need to get it. So I called the landlord and I told them I was going to fly out that week. And uh, I flew out and took the place. And that was myself and Amy Fleischer, Amy Madden now. I love um, her book, A Million Miles, I believe it's called. Yeah. And then she had the label though, uh, Fiddler Records. She moved out from Miami. She brought some friends with her as well. And, you know, I moved out from Massachusetts. And yeah, that was the start of that epic house up in Silver Lake. So you're originally from mass yeah i'm from hudson 
So between Worcester and Boston, I went to high school in Marlboro, and then I met Dickie Cummings there. He was in a band called Knockdown, and Knockdown was Trey McCarthy from Death Wish and Aaron Dahlbeck from Bane now, and probably other people that were awesome, I would imagine. And it was like Knockdown and Overcast and these like, you know, kind of metal hardcore bands, you know, in high school. And Dickie and I went to the same high school. He was a year older or maybe two years older, and we started doing shows together. So it was like Fitchburg and, you know, the 490 and like the different little halls out there. I didn't get to Boston level yet. It was just all the suburbs, not even Worcester level. It was really more like the small towns around. And, you know, Dickie and I started doing shows together after booking Cast Iron Hike to open on a bunch of the shows. Dude. You know, we were like, how is this band not signed? They were so cool, so unique, you know, different, successful, such a great band. And so good, you know, and we decided to take the money we were actually making from the shows, which was a good amount of money at the time, especially being in like, you know, a sophomore in high school or whatever. And we invested it into with Brian McTurnan to do the Salmon Drive EP for Cast Iron Hike. And um, that's how the label was started. Basically, you know, we were doing all these shows. So and that's even again, back to like the cannabis stuff. Now I, I said I'm doing a cannabis festival in May. I did New Bedford Festival in 93 with Kendra Eddy. And that was I was in high school. I think I was 15. We had 3000 people show up. We booked it on a pay phone because there wasn't even cell phones back then. And there was no internet, you know, and I had 3000 wow. kids show up, you know, Kendra and I had 3000 kids show up to this festival in, in New Bedford, middle of nowhere, basically. And now when people are talking to me about how am I possibly doing this festival for 6000 people in LA 20 years later, it was like, I mean, I've done it forever. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that's not going to be a lot of work to get it to happen. But I used to do these things when There was no internet to even promote or market the shows. Easier now to make that happen? Of course. Yeah. There's like, look look at this here, you know, cell phones. I mean, we would, the beginning when we did the shows and did the festival and stuff, even when we did the record label, we had a a dialer. I'm sure you had people talking about the little pocket dialer, you know, that you'd get at Radio Shack and have someone like mod out. And I would be in high school. I would take a bathroom break and I would really just go, you know, it was a vocational school. So we spent eight hours every day, every other week, you know, it was like the full week on in the shop class and I was taking mechanical engineering with Dickie and we would just go out into the hallway pretending we were going to the bathroom and I would call Strife or whoever like the bands were Snapcase all these things I would you know it'd be like a phone call payphone from high school you know and that's how we were doing it all how'd you get all these like bands numbers and stuff like just from like flyers from other shows yeah that's a great question it probably was like friends of friends and some of the bands probably had it in their seven inches and stuff like booking contact whatever Larry you know and and, um, but I remember calling like Andrew from Strife, Chad from Strife, like on the payphone in high school. And that was 1993 or 20, fuck, wait, 2003. Yeah, like 30 years ago that was. Oh my God. <laughs> was it almost 30? Oh, geez. I feel, so, I feel so old now. Holy fuck. It's crazy those bands are still going. Yeah, man. But again, like back to the cannabis stuff, I didn't expect a band to last for 20 or 30 years. We couldn't do it for a living. The bands were doing it as like weekends and side projects, you know? So, and you were kids uh, But then too. of course, they were kids. Well, you were, you were a like, kid, right? I mean. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. We started Big Wheel. I was 15. Yeah. Wow. I never expected it to be a business, you know? Right. It's funny because what you learned doing that, I'm not anti-college, but what you learned doing that oh. is nothing you can learn by sitting in the classroom. You know what I mean? So literally I was going to Northeastern at the time and I was going for music business. At the time, the curriculum wasn't even really written and half of my classes were music classes. Why I don't have a college degree is because I failed piano three times. They were like, if you can't play piano, you can't be in the music industry that's what they were saying and i was like 
I'm already in the music industry. I'm putting out records. I'm doing tours. I'm, you know, doing festivals. I'm doing all these things. Like, so in class, I would verbally be like dismissive and arrogant, basically being like, you guys don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And at the very end of college at Northeastern, I ended up starting to teach there. So I was still going to school, but I was teaching instead of finals and midterms, I would teach the class in the middle of the class. And then at the end of the semester, what what exchange for this was like music entrepreneurship and things like this perfect one of the finals one time was like you're gonna book a concert what do you do and i was like guys i have four shows next week if you want to come to the middle east you can come check them out and they couldn't say i was wrong because i was actually doing that so even though in their world concerts and piano and music theory were like part of music music was so new it wasn't it didn't grow and it wasn't big enough so it could splinter off and have these very specific roles you know so two things at the very end the the dean of northeastern at the time or, or of the college or whatever. I don't know how it works exactly, but but whoever I was meeting with asked me to help rewrite the curriculum of the major in general. And I was like, oh my God, amazing. Yes. It's like, you know, it's like going to be the right way. And then this is like my last semester. And then they asked me to teach a lecture at Blackman Auditorium, which is like, I think 1500 seats or a thousand seats or something. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to do this too. And then I started getting bills and I'm realizing, holy shit, I owe like $30,000 in student loans. Why am I working for free? I'm like helping these people rewrite the thing. I'm like going to teach this lecture for no money. And, and I and I was just like, oh, fuck this. I was super bummed. And I just basically, I don't think I went back to class. You never thought I was trying to work that out. Like, hey, I'm teaching this class no. here. Like, you know, no. I know. I, of course, now I'm like, now I still fucking own some of the loans. So, you know, I'm hoping that I get this thing waived. But, uh, and I never graduated. I figured that they'll end up giving me like an honorary degree one day. You know what I mean? When they, when cannabis is like really, really big and they want me to like say I went to Northeastern or whatever, you know. To your point, right? Your question was like, is the experience more important than college and I'll say that it definitely is but I was only able to have the experience because I took this college loans and I paid rent with them and I was able to like not have a job you know and I was able to experiment and when I was doing music classes I didn't have to do too much homework so I was using that time you know stealing time basically from that and then they had a recording studio there we had like a photocopy thing actually one really funny story with Northeastern going back to to Cast Iron Hike another big thing that happened was Jake Brennan was also going to Northeastern. He was always like a couple steps ahead. He was just, they were so progressive musically, you know, obviously the podcast, you know, he was always doing these different things, but this is a great, great story. So he ran a thing called CUP, the Council for University Programs. And it was like the concerts basically for Northeastern. And when I got there freshman year, I joined CUP because he was on the label at the time, you know, and I think he was like maybe two years ahead or something. And he decided he didn't want to run it anymore. And he voted to have me take it over. And I went from doing like punk shows for like 500 buck guarantees to having, I think like a $100,000 a year budget to book shows at Northeastern for all the college kids. And I should definitely, I'm not done it. I was not qualified, but Jake was like, oh yeah, Rama should do it. I beat out seniors, real business, you know, men and women. I beat them out just because Jake was already running it. He was like, Rama's the man, he should do it. But one of the biggest flops I've ever seen or been a part of, we booked J- Dinosaur Jr. and Coolio together. And this is at the height of Coolio and the height of Dinosaur Jr. And, you know, 1995, we'll call it. And I did it at the arena there with they play hockey at. Again, it's arena. Yeah, and it's a 5,000 person arena. The week of the show, we had sold 70 tickets out of 5,000. 
So really bad. And Mm. the college, I don't know if this has changed, but the college at the time wasn't allowing you to advertise off campus. So like you couldn't do press, you couldn't be in the newspaper, you couldn't put flyers up around town, you couldn't get it to the radio. And there was no way to promote on campus because there wasn't really even internet at the time, you know, so like, and it was Dinosaur Jr. and Coolio. So it was like super weird niche, you know, we canceled the show the week of and we had to pay 50% of both of their fees. And I think the total was like $75,000 we lost. (laughs) You know? Why yeah, weren't you exactly. allowed to advertise outside? You said off campus. Like, off, off campus. You just couldn't promote it to anyone that wasn't college students because it was like for the college students or whatever, you know? And um, well, yeah, the week of, and there's only 70 tickets sold. They couldn't bend the rules yep. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. So instead we just canceled it. We lost the 75 grand. So it must've been like a $150,000 event or something. And then, um, you know, we booked like camp low, which was like a hip hop artist that like kind of had a moment. I'm not a fan of this band, but I booked like G love and special sauce. And I booked dive and bound at the call with opposition. And I paid them each like a couple grand. And it was like, they hit the lottery. You know what I mean? Cause back then the bands were getting two or 300 bucks for a show, a hundred bucks for a show. Never mind. Here's 2000 bucks band you know what i mean that no one likes that is at the college you know because it's just like oh my god actually the worst one i did was Jawbox and Pegboy. if you remember these bands like big yeah. big punk bands at the time worse than that and, coolio thing dude way worse at least the coolio guys didn't leave their bed and they got paid Jawbox and Pegboy. it was pouring rain out we did it at one of the rooms like a basement kind of thing at the college and again i was doing basement shows so it how many people fit in the basement is the capacity so even a basement that legal capacity is 100 people i'd put 500 people in there you know the school came and the security had the door clicker and i think the legal capacity was like 40 or 50 people and it was a free show and there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids outside in the rain and the windows wrapped around the building and the windows were kind of open and all the kids were like pressed up against the windows screaming getting poured on while the bands were playing and in the jaw box 10 cd box set or whatever the jaw box box that they released maybe 10 years ago they talked about their worst show ever and it was my show nice it, they like literally it was a whole thing in it and it was like and the worst show we ever played was in boston and it was a show that we did and i think they each got paid maybe 10 grand or something like that which i'm sure was a ton of money for them but you know but jake again i i, I told jake the other day that like i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him and he's like oh yeah whatever blah blah, blah. but it's so true because i wouldn't have had the job doing cup i wouldn't have had the mistakes i wouldn't have had the wins and maybe i still would have got through and did the label as much and blah 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 and he was the first record we did right so without him putting out his record he was also my roommate we lived together in boston mm-hmm. you know so like if that all that stuff didn't happen i don't know if i'd be there you know at the end of the label and therefore i don't know if i'd be here because of again i think i'm doing a record label but for weed. so lately i've had watch it burn cast yeah. iron hikes record on repeat yeah. the last few months because i love that. i found a copy of it on you know discogs.com people sell their records i found one copy in japan what wow. a fucking album and it's incredible great band and, unbelievable band dude it's just so cool to see like i just had kurt blue on like a week or two ago he and i mm-hmm. were talking about this jake brennan and i talked about this it comes up a lot it's really cool to see what everyone has gone on to do i mean i didn't know you guys back in the day but i'm just a big fan and it's really awesome to see like so anthony rosamondo he was in the damn personals you know he played the trumpet on piebald's record and yeah he's a grammy winner an oscar winner and then you take look at jake brennan look what he's doing or matt galley or you elgin from 454 big block i mean he was the founder of fsu so that was like you know uh you know the the whatever etc right 
the, the game Kenny, that beat people up. That, yeah, I don't want to use that word, but yeah. But uh, but he was the founder of that. He's, of course, out of that. He's the one that went to jail. But now Elgin is a huge director in Hollywood. He does the Mayans TV show with Kurt Sutter, like the Sons of Anarchy spinoff. He did, um, he does like, he works with fucking crazy huge people at Sundance and, you know, like literally Paul Newman and, and these people like works with these the biggest people on the planet. Jeremy and Claire. Oh my yeah. God. Brian Sheffield. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. I've always called it like there's a piebald magic, but maybe, maybe to put a bigger umbrella over it, maybe it's a Boston fucking thing, yeah. you know, but there is yeah. some sort of piebald magic, man. You know, I don't know. There that, is for sure. Just, we we uh, made that. Piebald yeah. magic was, was made by me. Not just me, of course, me and the band, but like, that's exactly right. I Go love ahead. the fact that all these years later, almost 30 years later, piebald gave in and Converge are all still fucking bands and they're all yep. they're all still somehow intermingled like we just used Caven Sound Guy who plays bass in Def Avenue he was like the best sound guy ever and like Caven and Converge dudes making music together or uh, when Piebald did Boston Calling we played on the, the biggest stage in the world at that time for festivals or whatever and, and like it went Converge and Piebald and then like fucking Tool closed it out later in the day you know it was just like yeah. there's some magic or I've heard for Travis sure. say like there was something in the water in the Merrimack Valley whatever it is you know it's cool yeah no I mean, I think a lot of it is work ethic. You know, the DIY mentality was there, you know, and everyone could see it. And, you know, I think skateboarding is a big part of that too, where that comes from. Like to me right now, I wouldn't be anywhere without punk rock and skateboarding. I use both of those things every day in my life. That's all I'm doing still. I love how skateboarding and music go hand in hand not not even just punk rock rap just music and skateboarding it's, it's a hand in hand culture and it's a beautiful thing yeah. you know yeah that's right that's right mm -hmm. wait so let's go back a little bit before you move to la let's go back to when you're in boston so after so northeastern i think we had a couple records out at that point even up through jay june and jimmy world split was maybe coming out at that point and then you know we had a huge run in boston you know, Jimmy World started taking off. Jay June, you know, started having their moment. We had a bunch of other, you know, bands on the label, you know, the Lazy Canes and the all the different splits, the Hot Rod Circuit. You know, we did like all these uh, epic things. And, and there's a million bands, 10 Yard Fight, In My Eyes, you know, Fast Break, like all that stuff was happening. 454 Big Block, Dream Personals. And um, I was just figuring it out. You know, I, I, I didn't know that I could become a major label. You know, back then it was like indie labels and major labels was such a huge delta. And and I didn't know that like I could do what Vagrant did or or Interscope started. I, I could, didn't know I could do the Jimmy Iovine, like sign a couple bands, do it big, you know. And we basically were, you know, at the top of the world growing out of Boston. And I decided to move to Los Angeles and we kept an office in Boston with some of the staff. And I got a new space in L.A. You know, it was kind of like in a tech light. I brought some of the band, some of the, the other labels over to to do the stuff with me here. And, you know, it was Hydrahead and Doghouse. I was running doghouse records at the time as well and we did all american rejects there and say anything and oh cool um, you know max is coming on just reconnected with max recently besides jim atkins maybe max is the most talented musician i've ever had the pleasure of working with yeah you know and that whole process like really changed my life then you know working with you know really what happened i had big wheel going we had piebald and cancer conspiracy and just oh fair moses and the pleased and kind of some stuff at the end joanna nuisance band so just kind of some stuff at the end. Then I started managing the explosion and say anything. And Piebald got, I don't know, whatever it was, you know, jealous or something or, or you know, something where um, they fired me, you know. So we I was managing Piebald. They were the main label, you know, artists on Big Wheel and um, they fired me. And that caused me to shut Big Wheel down completely. Like that day, like I went from 
you know, I met with them. They said they didn't want to work on it anymore, you know, and I didn't have contracts with any of the artists. And even if I did have a contract, I would let them go. You know, like Aspera Ad Astra was on the label. They just wanted to leave the label. I had a multiple album deal with them and I just let them go for nothing because it wasn't about the money. It was about like the friendship and the camaraderie and, you know, going on tour and all this stuff. And when Pieball let me go, it was devastating. You know, it, it was like such a yeah. sad moment. I remember it still to this day. And it was something where I shut the label down. I focused completely on the explosion. Max was really sick in and out of the hospital with Say Anything. So I stopped working with Max because I was scared that I wouldn't be able to professionally deal with him. Was this post Israel Boy, during Israel Boy, pre? Yeah, this is Israel Boy. Yeah, so Israel Boy, I made that with Max. Every collaborator on it, I oh brought my on. God. My, we did the artwork for it, you know. To my the, top five Max, favorite albums of all time. Max lived at my house while we made it, you know, and he was like sleeping on the couch. He was, I think, just graduating from high school then. Wow. And um, it was unbelievable. Yeah, he does. I think Max was in the point where he couldn't believe that he was on the level of those artists, you know, because they were his, he was their super fan. He literally yeah, thanked yeah, like yeah. all of his favorite yeah. bands. And like, yeah. and I remember that because it was during the time where like, I remember walking to fucking Strawberries to go buy it and like yeah. opening up the the book and reading it while I'm listening to yeah. it and like I remember yeah. he thanked Pie like Pieball was in there and I was like oh yeah it made me like yeah. him more because I'm like he likes Pieball sick that, that's so right yeah Max was I mean he's a genius but he was really sick at the time I was scared that I'd say like bananas or something and he would just go off and and hurt himself or something or get hurt or whatever I couldn't be responsible for that I always really appreciated what he did because the start of that record it's him with his therapist right he's like yep. oh I have to like record the opening to the record it's only yeah. a few lines but I'm having anxiety about it and then the yeah, I think it's with like, his dad oh okay I didn't know that I think it's with Peter I'm not exactly sure I'd have to listen to it but and then yeah. he goes and the record begins with a song of rebellion yeah. for me it was the first time thinking back that someone really started talking about singing about like mental health and at least in the yeah. emo scene that that was yeah. that yeah. obvious and just that yeah. honest admit it think of admit it, it that song i mean right now it's fucking i play it for people all the time and they and they're like not from the punk rock world and they're like okay like what and i'm like but you don't understand 20 years ago this was such a big deal and you know i can't get laid in this town without these pointy fucking shoes and these lines <laughs> that were like so iconic yeah max just it was really unbelievable timing because all the bands were at this level and then max came in on top of it giving this new dimension like this fourth wall or whatever you'd kind of say like to it where he would like poke fun at himself you know I make my hair elegantly disheveled this kind of stuff you know mm -hmm. I still say right now today this person's patting themselves on their back as they starve every day of my life when I describe people in the cannabis industry you know so like Max super important but then so I couldn't do it anymore I was scared I passed him over to Kevin Kasatsu you know Kevin from Vagrant he ran the Vagrant label and Kevin started managing him they took my name out of the liner notes and everything and then and it was just the explosion. And when the explosion record came out and didn't hit, they fired me. When they fired me, I was like, fuck it. I'm out of music. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I hit up John LaCroix, who was in 10 Yard Fight. He was living in San Francisco at the time. And I asked him to help me put a resume together. I went to San Francisco for the weekend to visit him. I stayed there for three years. Him and I built a little ad agency up there. We worked with a bunch of fashion, art. You know, I had an art gallery going with 
with him. We worked with some alcohol brands and some clothing companies and shoe companies. And that's what kind of got me into the agency world. Did that for a couple years. Started doing that with another mentor of mine named Dr. Romanelli, uh, Darren Romanelli uh, at his uh, agency down here. And that's where we landed on one of the cannabis brands. And I was doing Beats by Dre, Disney, DreamWorks, Interscope. And then I did uh, a company called G-Pen, which is a portable vaporizer. Jeez, I have a few questions. Just going back to Say Anything real quick. It's like that Say Anything record to me was the first time I noticed someone, in addition to the sick music, just really just yep. being completely open about yeah, like, the right. mental health stuff, it, right? It, he's what the kids call an influencer these days. Absolutely. Even mental health with men is such an issue. Mm. And, you know, I mean, look at people like John Bunch or like, you know, other people from the scene that like, you know, they took their own lives. Like this is mm. a very important thing. So like, even though Max's record was unbelievable and say anything, you know, you know, even, you know, Sam from the explosion was kind of the same way. Sam was dealing with some mental health problems or Kanye West, you know, like you see it in them, like, but the art comes out in such a unique way that like the management, the labels like want it to keep happening. They don't want this person to, to take meds and be healthy. They want them to, oh, to fuck, you know, yeah be this creative yeah. stuff that's why i had to stop working with max like mm -hmm. his family was like oh get him on tour get him out of here you know like and i was like he shouldn't go on tour like he's not healthy he keeps getting in trouble basically and you know like yeah it was it was a dark time i was really scared that that we'd lose him i'm so glad that he's healthy oh, now and yeah, yeah. Um, and i reconnected with max recently he sent me some music recently and and i was like this should be a say anything record he that's thinks good. it shouldn't be and i was like dude this is a it's like anyway but, but either way know, that's the, great he's making music right you're in oh touch with God, him yeah. that's great he's doing it for a career he told me that he was like, dude, Israel boy bought me my house or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I never made, made a penny from any of those projects, really. And Explosion, I did well. Say anything, I probably didn't made a penny, literally. Piebald, probably didn't really make any real money. So I did a deal with, you know, the label where I had Doghouse take over the manufacturing and distribution. I never sold the company, but I sold the rights to manufacture some of the releases. And that went out of business as well. So I'm currently right now working on re-releasing, actually, a lot of the old Big Wheels. I've signed actually a distribution deal. I'm working with some of the artists on um, re-releasing everything, you know, and, and um, everyone's super pumped. So I don't think we'll see anything maybe till the end of this year. So I really want to do it right. I have a question. So you are managing bands and running the label. Are yep. there challenges to that? Because conflict of interest. Yeah. In yeah. California, like you can't even legally do that. But I think it's a law where you can't, the label and the manager can't be the same company out here. You know, artists get taken advantage of, you know, I'm sure Piebald at the time thought that was the case and we were, you know, we couldn't do both or whatever, but um, who cared about Piebald? No one, you know, like they were on Hydra head. They weren't even really a band. I like put them back together. We started working on stuff. Then John left and I like begged them to take Luke on, you know, Travis and I really like, you know, forced the band kind of to happen. And, but like you're making 10, 20% of a band's thing and it, the band's making 200 bucks a night. You know what I mean? Like, what year know, are we talking right now? All the years, you know? I mean, we took it over from after when Life Hands You Lemons, right? Like, Hydrahead was like, take this band, it kind of fits better. So it was all the records we did, you know, Venetian Blinds through all ages, through Rock Revolution will not be televised or whatever that one was. But yeah. Obviously, the biggest song they've ever had on it. And then, of course, we are the only 
only friends that we have, you know, was such an important record. But everything about that, I got Paul Coldry in on it. I designed the Pieball logo they use today. Yeah, we did the Jolly Roger. I did the Melvin, you know, thing with the bus, all Dude. of it. And they had the bus, but I was like, well, we're going to make it on a shirt. I designed the, lo the logo with the little star over it with the eye. I personally designed that myself 30 years ago. They're still using it today. Jeremy and Claire shot the photos. Every prop, every cloud, every little thing, I made those. I'm cutting out the foam core and painting the, the fucking spray painting the, the, the side of the cloud and hanging it up on the rafters for the photo. You know what I mean? So like Piebald was as much my band as it was their band. Yeah, you like the fifth member. Absolutely. I'm sure they have their own opinions of it, but like, look at the music. Look at the songs they play now. You know what I mean? Look at the songs people care about. I don't know a song after the records we did together. You know, I was hurt, so I couldn't listen to it, but I don't know if those records afterwards were as popular as the ones we did, but... The Friends record, of, like, that's the one, for sure. Absolutely. Well, and Venetian Blinds and, is amazing, and, but Accidental Gentleman is amazing. I still am so, I'm so upset by it. Literally, like, it, I'll cry if we start talking about it, to be honest. Like, I could listen to it now, maybe, like, with it after this conversation. Like, okay, you know, like, I gotta listen to it, but I can't even think about it. It makes me sad, you know, still, you know, so. If you don't want to go too deep, we don't have to. That's okay. No, man. no, 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 it's okay. Let's go as deep as you want. Have you tried talking to these dudes? Yeah, I've talked to Luke a bunch of times. We're working on the fast break stuff, you know, as well. So, not that I'm talking to to Steve Pika about that, but Luke's obviously part of it. And I've talked to Luke a few times because he's he was in the agency world, so we kind of crossed paths. Stewie and I tried to work on some projects together, you know, and I've kind of connected with him. This is years and years ago. I haven't seen him in a, in a long time, but Stewie and I were best friends, literally. We were in a scooter gang together called the Thunderbolts. Stewie, Travis, and I, I would consider, even Andy, I guess, I would consider, like, at the time, my best friends. Family. True family. They brought me to Europe, toured the country together many times. So what happened with Stuart? You trying yeah. to connect with him? and He just like showed up at my house one time at the old place in Silver Lake and we just started talking and I forget even, I think there was like a, he needed some t-shirts or he was doing t-shirts and I forget what it was. It was just like, hey, can we be friends still, you know? And then, um, you know, Andy and I are talking the most now, but it's like DM style and uh, mm -hmm. he hit me up after the interview I did, um, Mike uh, Doyle. you know, a couple months ago, yeah, where I was like i'm not sure if it, it's definitely not fighting for sure i would imagine but it would be i'm not sure if it would be like hugs or handshakes you know what i mean i said this and andy texted me like it would be hugs uh -huh. you know what i mean which obviously i love but yeah and i get it you know like all the bands the grass is greener but like look at say anything is a real boy and what i did with it and how involved i was and what came out look at we are the only friends we have and how involved i was and what happened and, and what came out i'll say this is not an arrogant thing but like we've had huge success with the label like big wheel had an insanely huge successful success rate and i was heavily involved i designed most of the record covers sit with the artists for for a year with the music you know they tied me into it jay june sings about me in the song fear and loathing on cape cod of course is yeah. you know what i mean and these so that's how it wasn't just like cool like send me the songs it was like i would go and travel with these people i'd create these situations with them of course like and, and again every time it's like i i i it's me and the band the whole entire time, mm -hmm. but it wasn't like a normal relationship of a manager or a record label person. And that was for better or worse. It is undeniable like that Say Anything record is a real boy. Like that's the one. Piebald, yep. Friends, that's the one. Was there something else to it? Or was I it... care. I'm the biggest fan. I was the biggest Piebald fan. So yeah. I wanted to make the best Piebald version of themselves. You know, that's, that's the difference. The other labels afterwards, they don't give a fuck. They're just like have to put out so many records a year because that's how it works. And I put out nothing 
nothing. I was so focused around Piebald that when they fired me, I shut the entire company down. Right. That's how dedicated to Piebald I was, where they were like, I mean, literally what happened is very specifically, and, and I don't know if there's different accounts of this, but that record started blowing up. The scene had all these bands getting signed. Major labels came to see Piebald and they didn't get it. And even though the kids were singing along and you know the shows were packed, the labels didn't understand it. And Piebald thought that I held them back from signing their major label deal and becoming huge. And they thought if they let me go, they could go do that. And they let me go and they signed to Side One Dummy, I think, or you know, some label that is like such a wrong fit for them. I don't know who was managing them at the time or whatever, but I totally understand. The grass is always greener. These guys want to do it for a career. We never expected to do it as a career. We couldn't even believe it. We'd get home from tour and split up a couple hundred bucks each. You know what I mean? It was like that level in the beginning. Going back to just that entrepreneur brain, how did you know how to like just push these guys and like just make all this stuff happen? It was over communication for years and years and years. And then it was trust. They started trusting me when I'd be like, we should put this on a shirt. And then they would be like, ah, and then we do it and it would sell. Or I would just like do the extra button thing or like we started working on the bus and it became like a, a whole thing. And it was built up trust over time for years. Let's take Say Anything just to talk about a different yeah. bit. What was it with Max and that whole thing? What were you doing to, to make shit happen there? Um, yeah, so there it was like, we already, already knew how to do it. Right. I've done it so many times. Mm -hmm. And Max was like the new young kid. And he was fucking so talented that mm -hmm. I knew anytime I put him in a room with anybody, he'd play like an acoustic guitar and it would just like people's jaws would drop instantly. So it was an easy one. And he trusted me because of the bands. He trusted me because he loved Piebald and Hot Rod Circuit and these things, you know, so when I could deliver Hot Rod Circuit or the guys from Recover to come to the studio and sing these parts, he was super fans of them. That's all it took probably is me like, you know, and he was young and his family, to be totally honest, and you know Peter Bemis is his dad who's a super famous artist and and Schiffer is his mom and but they were sick of him they were they were like they dealt with him for like 17 years of being this crazy kid and uh, they just wanted him out of the house I was the perfect yeah. age for that and like I just related to that yeah. stuff man maybe it's yeah. a generational yeah, yeah. thing I, you know but like I yeah. totally like that's why I could again aside from the music being insanely good yeah. it was just like everything yeah. he was saying I was hanging on to every yeah. fucking word I was like yes that's yeah. how I feel and I've never heard anybody yeah. say that before yeah that's right I bet you he really saved a lot of kids yeah definitely yeah. no yeah. question yeah, yeah. Travis same way Travis like oh my god you know like my favorite lyricist really so is Travis Shettle like yeah. our monkey versus robot tattoo when I started touring with them just like being a fly on the wall like you know those guys the dude's just always singing we'll be at the gas station he's singing about getting gas and like Stuart will oh, chime in yeah. with his shenanigans and, sure. and like it's for like sure. you almost see like the magic happening like without yeah. them even knowing anything's happening but there's just on yeah. another level you know yeah i know and so you know i'm sure it comes to back to like the piebald like breakup story it's like and i'm sure for that reason and that reason alone they wanted to be career musicians i think that was the crazy part i mean you look at that time with recover and all these bands getting signed to these labels that destroyed the music industry all those bands got destroyed from that you know what i mean all those bands aren't even together anymore you know right. the ones that are still together are the ones that avoided that better or worse or had the control in their own hands even explosion you know explosion i paid for the first demo explosion record i think it was 400 dollars. flash 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 i think cost two thousand bucks to make and black tape i think we had four hundred thousand dollars to make it you know when you give a band that spent two thousand bucks on their last record 400 grand to make a record it's not going to be the band anymore probably what do you even do what, what do you even do with that you waste a lot of money is what, yeah. what you do it was like that final era before downloading and streaming where people were buying records at record stores and people would mm -hmm. sell 10 million records and a million records first week and stuff so and the labels had no idea what they were doing they have a like a 
99% failure rate or whatever. They just throw everything to the wall. And if it doesn't stick like literally immediately, they like will can a record before it even comes out. They'll make it, spend half a million bucks making it, go to radio. If it doesn't hit, they'll not even release it or they'll just, you know, tie it up. Like they'll just kill it where it sits. They don't look at it like it's a band's career. They look at it just like a you know list on the ledger, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, Rama, we are coming up on the 20 year anniversary for that magical record we are the only friends we have i would like to hear what you remember i mean that record was a long time in the making and it was the transition really with like john and luke coming over and kind of piebald like you know i don't say growing up but kind of maybe maturing naturally and going for it really and you know paul coldry it's insane that he made that record for us i mean this guy made the radiohead records paul coldry called them royalty head he said i can do your record because you know i got royalty head checks coming in. I think he did the record for 10 grand, which is nuts. It probably took me six months to pay him. But Paul Coldry, we didn't deserve to do that. Like, I don't think we realized how big of a deal it was because Pieball was just kind of on fire. Again, I'm like a, a demon dialer, cold email, cold phone call person, you know, and I was Pieball's biggest fan. So, you know, I'm sure when Paul met us, he just loved the energy and excitement that we even had going into it. And if you don't need the money, all you care about is your time. What were your favorite songs on the record? Do you have a couple? American Hearts, I'll say, of course, one of the best songs literally ever written. Fear and Loathing, great one. He sings about me in it. So, of course, I love it. Long Nights, probably that. I can picture it right now. Well, you know what? I also loved, right? Like, night, and I get, I'm getting chills. Like, the money was never important to me, ever. And that's even why I'm basically living at Anthony Rosamondo's house. Like, I didn't care about that. I could have been a fucking scumbag, fucking label guy, and made so much more money. What I cared about is being right and the kids singing along. To me, like, every kid singing along, that's all I cared about. So, like, American Hearts is built to sing along to. Long Nights is kind of the same way. So those songs to me were like the song. Simple Plan for sure. You know, we had the kids sing on it and stuff like that. You know, Travis's kids that he was teaching at the time. I just pictured like Travis singing, just him and the guitar. I literally have chills and like, and it's the audience completing it. How about touring at the time? I know you, you went to Europe with them, right? Yeah, we went to Europe with them. It was crazy. We were five of us in, in Brian Sheffield came over as well. So six of us at some point in like a, essentially not even a minivan, but like a mini minivan van we had the craziest driver tour manager named joseph super unique guy and i don't know where he's at now but probably doing something really beautiful unbelievable experience i remember the the end of that trip the last day in amsterdam i remember super vividly i was in a fight with the band and um i don't remember what over but just probably some bullshit nothing and i wasn't sure like how we felt personally what how it was going to happen when, we, when i got home when we got home from the trip and i remember listening to we are the only friends that we have on the headphones as i went to sleep you know i picture it's right now so perfectly even like on the left side of the bed that i was on just to remind myself like what we did you know and this accomplishment that we had and i think it's easy to forget how important these things are but you know bands play for 10 years and never get to put out a record you know never mind get to tour their local area never mind get to tour the country never mind get to go overseas into europe you know that was just such an unbelievable time love that record still and i'm super proud of it even though it's the last project i got to work on with the band you know i still feel like like it's something that is part of my life daily. I literally say, hey, sex sells and unfortunately I'm buying every day, every month, every week. You know what I mean? Like every time I see an ad or because I'm obviously advertising and marketing now, anytime I see that or see someone selling sex or what, you know, like sex, you know, not literally, but you know, the idea of sexual, whatever men, women, you know, portrayed in these ways, it's burned into my brain. I have a question. It's kind of a heavy question. I hope you're comfortable with it. Yeah. <laughs> How would you handle or would you handle it differently managing the bands and the 
the record label at the same time. Pieball would have never got there. The band wouldn't have existed. Like not even just Pieball, just, just any, you know. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I and I didn't really manage many artists and do the records. Pieball was one of the very probably the only one that I actually did, and it was just because who wanted to manage them? Like no one cared about it. You know what I mean? I just needed to do it again. I put the band together. It wasn't just acting in the record label sense. I was acting as a manager because the band wouldn't exist unless I did that. So, but yeah, I, you can't change anything. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. The only thing I would have loved to do is I would have loved to have the band go on from me and have a commercial success. That way they never looked back at it like I held them back because I'm sure that there was time and probably even now maybe with some of the members where they think if I didn't manage them, they would have been huge or bigger. I mean, back then, that's why they let me go. They let me go because they thought that I couldn't get them the major label deal and I, it was maybe a conflict of interest because I um, was managing them and they were signed to the label. So why would I want them to leave? But, you know, we did a couple phone calls and everyone came to see the band play. Every major label came to see them. They were a weird, quirky band. They are a weird, quirky band. And I think there was some interest from some different labels back then a little bit maybe, but people could have made offers. People could have signed the band. You know, they didn't have a multiple album contract with me. They could have left anytime they wanted. And the writing was kind of on the wall. I knew that they were going to try to go for it and, you know, do something else. And again, you know, it's the proof is in the pudding. Look what we created together versus without me. Well, I feel like this also weighs really heavy on you, man, because um, <laughs> like you, you know, you did a lot of really rad things. And again, this comes from a place of honor and respect, but I can just feel it sure. talking to you, man. It like, seems like it still weighs pretty heavily on you. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. They were my best friends, you know, yeah. like they, we are the only friends that we have, you know, like that, that was true. That came from us, you know? Damn, dude. Goosebumps. Yeah. Right. That's, that's yeah. what it was, you know? And then, uh, but I get it. I fully, fully, fully get it. Again, explosion, same thing, you know, basically, right. They were like, we tried it with you. We want to go try it with someone else. I don't blame them. Again, I just loved them so much personally that I wished that they had more success. When I look at it, of course, my ego is like, fuck yeah, I was the right one. I did it the best. You know, like if Pieball didn't let me go, I guarantee you we would have had a much bigger record. You know, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty always. But I have no regrets with it at all. If anything, I'm bummed that Aaron and Andrew and Travis and I aren't friends. That would be the only thing that I regret. I lost my friends. Business, who cares? You know, it's just money. Who cares? You know? But to them, again, I get it. Again, I shut, I shut the entire label down because they fired me. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I had a million things going on, all the conflict of interest. How could it be conflict of interest? I had one interest, make Pieball big. The second I wasn't working with them, I shut everything down. I worked mm -hmm. for one artist. I had the Cancer Conspiracy signed and the Pleased signed, but I built everything around and for Pieball, you know? So. Shit, man. That's tough. I can see it bums you out, man. Yeah, for sure. I can remember back to that day. It was on the porch on Ewing Street in Silver Lake where I moved out and Jeremy and Claire found the house for us. It was on the porch outside. Luke was the one that kind of led the, the firing. I remember hugging Andy and us both literally in tears as I got fired. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, hey, effective immediately. We're no longer on the label. It was like, dude, we, we got to move on. We can't do it. And like, I'm literally crying and we're crying each other as we hug. And there was no like legal stuff that happened. Happened. I, I don't know what happened with the records. I know I, I shut the label down that day, literally. That day, I literally went right from there to the label offices and fired everybody and put my notice in and completely shut the company down. So if anything, like, did Pieball kill Big Wheel? I'm sure they were upset that I held them back, but I think it was the complete opposite. I think I got them there and then I shut everything down because they let me go. There's a lot of angles to that. You brought up the point, like, you know, did Pieball kill it or did I? never I? thought about that until right now, literally. What bands were still on there? The other bands at the time were 
Ofer Moses was on there, the Ofer record. We had Cancer Conspiracy. We had The Pleased, which was Joanna Newsom's band. That might have been it. The whole entire company was built around Piebald. How did those bands take it, and what did they go on to do? They were super bummed. Those bands, they wanted to try to have a career. And again, I started Big Wheel as a hobby in high school. You know, I never thought it was going to be a business and 10 years into it. And I've done this for a long time. I just wanted to do something new. So, you know, when they fired me, I was like, cool, fuck it. I don't even want to do a label anymore. I'm going to go do this other thing. I'm going to manage artists. And then I started managing Explosion and, and Say Anything. And then when I stopped working with Max again, because, you know, what he was going through. And then when the Explosion fired me, kind of the same idea with Piebald, the Explosion. Then I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm not even going to manage artists. Now I'm going to go start an advertising agency. And then I did the agency for... 10 years. And I was like, fuck this. Now I'm going to start building brands. So it's more like you said, like a true entrepreneur. I would never call myself that because whatever, but it's like, you know, stupid, but, you are. but I know I understand like definition. Yes, of course, but that's definitely what it is. And that's the action. I just want to build cool stuff. Even with Pi back to Piebald, like I could have hired and paid someone to make the logo and design the record, but I wanted to do that. That was yeah. my creative input in part of it, you know? And then of course, when I met someone that would be better than me, I would only use them. So I would never, ever, ever think of taking the photos because Andy, Andrew Bonner, Jeremy and Claire, Brian Sheffield, they were so good at it that I there was a I knew I couldn't kind of compete. But then when it came to like the design side of it or the t-shirts or the buttons or the stickers, yeah, that was like the fun part of it. The management side of it was by default. Like when we did Piebald, we would book the tour. Travis and I probably would co call up the places and book it ourselves. We'd have to print out a phone book basically of directions and have physical maps to even get around. It was like so, so, so long ago that no one's gonna do that. I was tour managing the band for the entire time. When we were first doing Piebald, we would go buy shirts at the thrift store out of the dollar bin, turn them inside out, and the guys would be screen printing the Piebald logo on it while the bus was driving to the next show. We'd go buy like 10 shirts a night, make them that day, sell them that night for like five bucks, two bucks, whatever it was. It was like We'd make, we'd print our own merch on the way to each show. We'd show up, it'd be a basement or like a weird little room or a living room or whatever. There'd be maybe 30, 40 people there. But again, it didn't matter. Like the, the scene was just, that was enough. Like, oh, 20 kids were like there. Wow. Like, you know, 50 kids. Whoa, that was like a big deal. Andy's great. He's like the piebald historian. Like he has pictures and his dad saves a lot of stuff. He recently just found the screen for the piebald littering and then the stencil for the patches for uh, yeah. sometimes friends fight. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I so have, cool. I, I was just I like, have, whoa, like, uh, man, put that in a fucking museum. You know, I was like yeah, 30 years old, yeah. dude. Yeah, I have some of that stuff too. I have the stamp, like the rubber stamp from When Life Hands You Lemons on Hydrahead, like that we stamped the vinyl with. And that was wow. even before me. I have the original Jolly Roger flag still now. Right now I have it. Um, like the one that we scanned that we made the logo from. That's why when Andy was like, hey, do you have any piebald stuff? We're trying to get some stuff figured out. I was like, dude, you have no idea. I'm not exaggerating. I, Dana, I probably have, I'm going to say 2,000 pieces of piebald memorabilia. I have CD spindles like this, many of a whole bit of them, because I did all the records, right? I did all the stuff. So I have almost every poster ever, stacks of every tour poster, photos from every single tour. I dedicated my life to Piebald and my business to the point where when they let me go, I changed my entire life and shut the entire business down. So you know what I mean? So how could you be more dedicated to something? Again, conflict of interest. I for sure understand that. But it was like the only interest I had was making Piebald big. I guess I just wonder, 
would things have turned out differently if you did one or the other? You know, I don't know. Yeah, definitely it would have turned out differently. They, they wouldn't have been as successful. We went from like nothing to we are the only friends that we have. It went very fast. It's all good though. Everything happens for a reason. All right, Rama. Dude, this is really cool. I've wanted to talk to you and meet you for a long time and I'm, I'm sure I'll meet you in person one time. But this is cool for now. I want to make sure because you're doing all this weed stuff. What can we plug? I mean, just check out Green Street. Just spelt out on Instagram, Green Street, or um, yeah, just that's that's it. I don't really want to plug much stuff, you know. I'm doing exactly what I did then, but I'm doing it for weed because you can't download weed yet. Two-part question. Sure. What is your proudest moment from your time in the scene, one? Mm-hmm. And number two, if you could give advice to a younger version of yourself, what would that be? Yeah. So proudest moment and advice you would give. I'll give you my, my proudest piebald moment I'll give you. I'm not sure overall moment but proudest pieball moment is was definitely the release party for we are the only friends that we have in worcester at the palladium with thursday opening sold out and there was a thousand kids or something singing along i think jeremy has a really great overhead shot of the whole thing but that was the proudest moment like wow like we made it you know like we went through all that basement show all that fighting, all that hard work, all the in and out of the members. So like, to me, that was it. And again, like before I told you what I thought about money, it was kids singing along. And then for the, the advice, I mean, perseverance is the first thing that comes to mind. Just like keep going, you know, like no one knows what they're doing in life. No corporate person actually knows what they're doing. They're all full of shit. Don't worry about it. Keep going, do what you love to do. Don't wait for anyone else at all. DIY the motherfucker every second. Don't ask for permission at all. You know, ask for forgiveness and and go get it. You know, if you want to do a band, start a band. If you want to put a record out, just do it. You're gonna fail a million times. So like that's why I kind of say everything happens for a reason. That's why I don't I can't get too bummed on like the piebald stuff. You know how that went down or or any other bands that firing me or wanting to leave because you know it's like you're you have to do a million things to try them all out and see what you're good at and what's you know what you're passionate about and what you love. Other options is to fucking regret it and have a crappy job and and not do the stuff that you want to do. I don't tweet a lot, but I tweeted the other day that like everyone should start a band at least once in their life. I really mean it. Everyone should just go through the experience of what it takes to do this. But so many people are scared. Today, the kids these days, they know they can do anything they want kind of thing. They want to be YouTubers or whatever, but you know, it's just try it, make it, break it, do it again, you know, but nothing replaces hard work. Brilliantly worded, man. That was very, very well said. Thanks, man. My mentors right now are like super hardworking, you know, like crazy entrepreneur business people. And and they really like me and they help me and they mentor me basically. But I feel like I'm just getting started now. I still feel like I'm I'm just at the very beginning of all the cool stuff that I'm going to get to do. That's beautiful, man. New chapter, right? New chapter. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right, Rob. So cool, man. Well, I got to kind of run. I got to, I'm going to be super late for this thing, but this was awesome. I can do this anytime. Like if you want to jam again later or next weekend or whatever it is, any other questions. And I told Andy, like I DM'd him. I was like, Hey, like, I know you're doing the 20 year. Like they did like a 10 year reunion thing. They, you know, they did all this stuff. I didn't even get invited. I want to be involved. And, you know, I have the most insane archive ever of all time of Piebald. All right, Rob. So thanks, man. All right, let's wrap this one up. 
baby, come on. Rama Mayo, thank you so much, dude. I have a feeling you and I will speak again. That was the first time he and I ever spoke. I mean, I've always known of him, right? Fear and loathing on Cape Cod, dude. Rama said I looked like a Kennedy. And Ryan's taking pictures. And flattery doesn't make sense in our state. That was really cool for me just as a music fan, as a piebald fan, and whatever, a Boston music fan. So, yeah, man, keep in touch, brother. Aside from that, let's close this one out. Now, here's the deal. If this is your first time checking out the two-week notice podcast, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. If this is your vibe, hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss a single episode. Max Bemis's name came up quite a bit on this episode. He's coming on the podcast. Anthony Green's coming on the podcast. Alex Garcia Rivera, who is a former piebald drummer, he's coming on the podcast. All right, that's just to name a few. Come around. So hit subscribe and go check that backlog. I've had some killer guests in the past. I'm also going to have a lot of Furnace Fest guests as we lead up to this legendary festival in September. If you really want to help me out, this is like incredibly helpful. If you have an iPhone in particular, go to the podcasts app. It's a little purple square. It says podcasts. All right. Type in my show, Two Week Notice Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed and then scroll all the way down and give me a five star written review. This is incredible incredibly helpful you have no idea and i just ordered some new pins and shit so hit me up dude i'll happily send you some pins and stickers and i even got some t-shirts left over i'm giving this shit away get it out of my face all right i appreciate you listening to the show uh if you don't have an iphone hey have no fear spotify is here go on spotify you can give me five stars there as well all right let's close it out now this is a piebald song that you may not know this was released in 2016 on an iTunes comp. It's called Last Song. And I always liked this song, and I kind of forgot it existed for a few years. An Accidental Gentleman Era B-side. Song's rad. I just feel like people need to hear it. So, all right, until next time, I love you all. Thanks, Rama. Peace.